Thank you. That's done. Okay, you're all very welcome. Welcome to Scottsdale Big Book, Big Book Study, where we will study the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today is the 7th of October, 2023. My name is Audrey Ann and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from County Mead in Ireland. And I will be your host for today's study. Our co-hosts are Maria F, Dottie S and Veronica C. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat mm-hmm. function. The chat function will be disabled until five minutes before the Q&A session. Please note that the speaker, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer sessions, which follows, will not be recorded. We ask if you can please to make sure that you keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also please turn off your video video if you are exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason. During the meeting, we will post a link to our seven tradition. This money goes towards the co-host, the, the host of the, sorry, the cost of the Zoom account, the cost of uploading the recordings. And we also send contributions to Intergroup Arizona Serenity in the Desert and World Service Organization. We will post a link to the previous week's recording also, and you can click on this by the link in the chat function. And I will now hand you over to Harlan G. Thanks, Harlan. Thank you very much, Audrey. And thank you to everyone who makes this meeting possible. It is not just me. I'm what you see. I'm what you hear. But there are many, many people behind the scenes that keep the Zoom room going. People, you know, the people that moderate, the people that handle the Q&A at the end. There are just a whole uh, host of people that are just instrumental in keeping this going. I'm glad to be here this morning. I am so happy when I missed, I missed uh, three weeks, I think, of it. I was hospitalized, and then there were two weeks after my hospitalization where there was no way I could have done this. I could not have sat in this chair for any length of time, that's for sure. And I could not have, I, I didn't have the energy. I had maybe 15 minutes of energy and then I would be out like a light. So there was no way I could have done that. But anyway, I'm here now and we're going to talk about the chapter to employers. We're not going to obviously cover the entire chapter this morning, but just to give you a little background, this is the only chapter in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous besides the doctor's opinion. So this is one of two. The doctor's opinion was written primarily by Dr. William Duncan Silkworth. And this chapter is written by Hank Parkhurst, not Hank Parker, not Hank Parkoff. It's Hank Parkhurst. And Hank Parkhurst had a lot more to do with the formation of this book, the printing of this book, than anyone else besides Bill Wilson. This is the only chapter in the book where the word God is not mentioned. There are no other chapters in this book where God is omitted like that. But Hank Parkhurst was not big on the God bit. And in this chapter, he does not mention the word or concept of God. Hank Parkhurst, had he not um, gotten drunk in September of 
1939, easily would have been the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. You have to remember that Dr. Bob did not have much more to do with the formation of this book than you. Dr. Bob wrote his story and he encouraged others to write their stories, but the big book was not readily accepted by the Akron groups. Many in Akron believed that the big book was a money-making scam of Bill Wilson. Some in Akron believed that Bill and Bob knew each other before and were lying about their association. Bill and Bob were uh, trying to get certain people in Akron to submit their stories, like Bill Dotson, who wouldn't do it, Earl Treat from Chicago, who wouldn't do it. They just would not contribute to what they believed was a money-making scheme of Bill Wilson's, and they had no love loss for New Yorkers as it was. But Hank Parkhurst was very instrumental. If it was not for him, we would not own the copyright of our own book. Now that's somehow got screwed up too, so that we no longer own the copyright of the first edition. And that's why you see some of these little red books running around and the big red books running around, uh, because uh, we've lost the copyright on our first edition through a clerical error. But anyway, that aside, Hank Parkhurst was from New Jersey, and he was the very first person in New York to get sober besides Bill Wilson. He was introduced to Bill Wilson through Dr. Silkworth when he was a patient at the Towns Hospital in New York City. And he attended Oxford group meetings with Bill and Fitz Mayo and some of the other early guys. And he, uh, when Bill Wilson uh, started writing the big book, it was at his office uh, in Newark, New Jersey, 17 Walnut Street, where the big book was primarily authored, was downtown Newark. And there's a plaque on that building today commemorating it as a national historical site. This is where the big book was primarily written. Hank was not a great businessman, for sure. He had many, many setbacks, many failures. He was uh, a guy who owned a company that was not very successful after a long, long history of working for Standard Oil of New Jersey. The government, through antitrust legislation, split up Standard Oil. Standard Oil was owned by the Rockefellers, and they split it up. And in uh, New Jersey, Standard Oil of New Jersey, Hank Parkhurst found himself working. And then he decided he was going to go off on his own. He didn't really decide that. He was drunk and he got into some trouble. But the bottom line is he started a company called Honor Dealers. And Honor Dealers were, were was a company that was supposed to sell like windshield wipers, tires, uh, all kinds of supplies, batteries, different things to car dealers. And at that time, he uh, employed uh, Ernie, uh, not Ernie, he employed Bill Wilson. And Bill wasn't really into it. So Bill spent most of his time writing the big book, didn't really do much with honor dealers. But there were some guys there uh, like um, Bill Wilson and um our atheist, uh, whose name I can't think of right now, 
Jimmy Burwell, Jimmy Burwell. And Jimmy Burwell went to work for Honor Dealers as well. So there were people there was, you know, that went to work there. He had his influence. But were it not for the fact that Hank Parkhurst got drunk in September of 1939, after the big book was published on April the 10th, 1939, he, it would not have been Bob Smith, would have been recognized as the co-founder of AA. He had much more to do with the formation of AA, much more to do with the big book than Dr. Bob ever did. But his uh, Dr. Bob's claim to fame was he remained sober when these other guys were getting drunk all around him. So for the first few years, there was no such thing as a co-founder. There was no such thing. Bill Wilson was the founder. That was as far as anybody got. And then late 30s, early 40s, when they were looking for a co-founder to sort of make things a little bit better, they settled on Dr. Bob. But Dr. Bob definitely, uh, again, not to beat this dead horse, had a lot less to do with our early formation and a lot less to do with the big book than Hank Parkhurst. Yeah. Hank, uh, he wanted to have an affair with Ruth Hock, who was Bill's secretary at that time, or not Bill's, was Hank's secretary at that time. And Ruth typed much of the big book, and Hank wanted to have an affair with, with her. He was married, she was not. She was divorced, and in the 1920s, 1930s, divorce was not very prevalent, and he he almost got her. He almost won her over, but then he started drinking, and she said, oh, I don't, I don't think so, and so that never uh, happened, and when Bill Wilson was there with Hank, and Hank got drunk, he accused Bill Wilson of trying to have an affair, having an affair with Ruth Hock, and we have no solid evidence of that at all whatsoever. She never recollected an affair with Bill. We have nothing in terms of correspondence or nothing in terms of eyewitnesses, but Hank Parkhurst did a lot of damage to Bill's reputation by spreading up and down the eastern seaboard that Hank or excuse me, that Bill was having an affair with Ruth Hock, and he almost he almost destroyed early AA because he was drunk and he was angry and jealous, and uh, he did a lot to hurt AA as well. With that in mind, let's take a look at this chapter, and we're going to be talking about some things in this chapter that I hope will not only bring it to life a little bit better for you, but will give you some things to think about in your own life and some things to consider in your own situation that will be helpful for you in your endeavor to recover. So let's take a look at page 136. We're on page 136. And once again, this is the only chapter beside the doctor's opinion that is not primarily written by Bill Wilson. This chapter was written by Hank Parkhurst. Bill didn't write anything in this chapter, not one word. Among many employers nowadays, we think of one member who has spent much of his life in the world of big business. He's talking about himself. He has hired and fired hundreds of men he knows the alcoholic as the employer sees him. 
His present views ought to prove exceptionally useful to businessmen everywhere, but let him tell you. I was at one time assistant manager of a corporation department employing 6,600 men. This was Standard Oil of New Jersey. One day my secretary came in saying that Mr. B insisted on speaking with me. I told her to say that I was not interested. I had warned him several times that he had but one more chance. Not long afterward, he had called me from Hartford on two successive days so drunk he could hardly speak. I told him he was through, finally and forever. My secretary returned to say that it was not Mr. B on the phone, it was Mr. B's brother, and he wished to give me a message. I still expected a plea for clemency, but these words came through the receiver. I just wanted to tell you Paul jumped from a hotel window in Hartford last Saturday. He left us a note saying you were the best boss he had ever had and that you were not to blame in any way, end quote. Another time I opened a letter which lay on my desk, a newspaper clipping fell out. It was the obituary of one of the best salesmen I had ever had. After two weeks of drinking, he had placed his toe on the trigger of a loaded shotgun. The barrel was in his mouth. I had discharged him for drinking six weeks before. Still another experience, a young a woman's voice came faintly over long distance from Virginia. She wanted to know if her husband's company insurance was still in force. Four days before he had hanged himself in his woodshed, I had been obliged to discharge him for drinking, though he was brilliant, alert, and one of the best organizers I had ever known. Here were three exceptional men lost to this world because I did not understand alcoholism as I do now. What irony, I became an alcoholic myself. And but for the intervention of an understanding person, Bill Wilson, I might have followed in their footsteps. My downfall cost the business community unknown thousands of dollars for it takes real money to train a man for an executive position. This kind of waste goes on unabated. We think the business fabric is shot through with a situation which might be helped by a better understanding all around. Now we're gonna stop right there and we're gonna talk about the theme of what we have been looking at. We're gonna talk about loss. You see, when we come in here a lot of times, we think that this is about weight and food. And it is about so much more than weight and food. And some of the most brilliant words I've ever been exposed to are these. The saddest words of tongue or pen are these few words. It might have been. The potential that we all have is great. Many of us are extremely talented, brilliant, capable people. And many of us have been very, very successful. But I do know this, not just in my life, but in the lives of everyone whose story that I know is an alteration in path that happens as the result of this disease. There is a path correction and it never goes north 
it goes south mostly, and sometimes in a best case scenario, a little east or a little west. Oh, the dreams that we could have had. Oh, the dreams that I had as a young man. I had dreams of being a teacher. I had dreams of rising above the poverty that I saw in my home. I knew that I tested well in school, but I never did well because I didn't do homework and I, I wasn't attentive and I was too pent on eating and not pent enough on doing homework and getting good grades. I had dreams just like everyone else. I had dreams that were never, ever fulfilled. Now, a lot of people out there have dreams that are not fulfilled too. But the reason mine were never fulfilled is because of this evil illness. The things that I wanted for myself, I had to settle for something completely different. I will never find out that a girl in high school or college had a crush on me. I will never find out what it's like to have that summer fling or to have that one night stand or to have that, you know, that youthful passion. That ship has sailed. I will never find out what it would be like not to work when I'm 69 years old because I pay the price every single day for the fact that I sell on a telephone instead of having a real career that I might have had if I didn't have this evil and corroding eating disorder. I will never know what it's like to go to the prom or to go to homecoming or to be the love of someone's life or something like that's done with that's that's done it's over and it's it's like a wound in my soul the embarrassment and the shame that I felt at the hands of this disease from an early age on I don't think I was put on this earth to break furniture but I did I don't think I was put on this earth to be the fattest person in the environment, but I was. I don't think I was put on this earth to be the butt of jokes, but I was. I don't think I was put on this earth to be alone, but for so long I was. Now, you may be thinking as you're listening to this, why is he complaining? Why is he belly aching and engaging in self pity? Because what I want to bring out as enthusiastically as all the losses that I had and continue to suffer the pain of, there are great gains. That God, when he moved into my life, helped me to rise above myself and my disease. And as the disease creates the self-loathing and destroys everything in its path, the recovery encourages, the recovery is full of love. I today am dating an absolutely fantastic person. My bills are paid. My credit is good. Did I do as good as my friends? Not in, in the financial area, certainly not in you know romance until lately. But what I can tell you is, I certainly have wonderment in my life. I am with an outstanding human being, dating a fantastic human being, just amazing. I can't even get over how unbelievable this is. I'm not alone. 
I have God with me. Even when we're apart and we live in separate states, even when we're apart, we're together in my head and in my heart. I have good friends. I've had a decent life. I'm at the end. I'm 69, but I'm going to live until I die. I'm going to live until I die. I am not just going to lay down and, and roll over and die. I refuse to do that. I don't have to roll over and die. And so as horrible as the disease devastated my dreams and devastated my life, the recovery brought things into my life that can only be described as miracles. The miracle of the person I'm with, unbelievable. The miracle of being able to walk. Now, yes, I like walking three miles a day and I like it when, you know, I can finish in a timely fashion, but I walked a mile this morning and you know what? It took me a long time. I don't even want to tell you that it took me 42 minutes to walk a mile. God, I'm embarrassed by that. It's horrible. But you know what? I've got a hematoma in my hip and I finished and I finished the mile. And you know what? My bills are paid. And you know what? I'm alive and I'm in recovery. And I didn't wake up this morning with that horrible, nightmarish self-loathing of what the hell did I eat yesterday? And oh my God, am I going to get diarrhea? And oh my God, am I going to get a stomach ache and a sour? I didn't wake up this morning with any of that hanging over my head. I woke up this morning absolutely in love with an unbelievable person. I woke up this morning liking myself, trusting God, leaning into recovery, doing service, and having service done for me. This is the most magnificent way of life imaginable. There is no way of life greater than this. And yes, as we've talked about in other chapters, there are certain things about my life that I wish were different, but that's part of the human condition. Nobody gets out of here not wishing certain things were different. Nobody lives their life without that certain tinge of, I wish this or I wish that. Nobody does. And so we're like other people in that. Now, before we move on in this chapter, I want to just remind us all of something. I'm in recovery. So sometimes I see things or I speak from the standpoint of someone with 24 plus years of abstinence and in good recovery. There's 130 of you here, 129 of you here. Some of you are not in recovery. I just want to remind you that if you're here, there is a way out. You don't have to give this disease one more dream or one more second of your life. I gave this disease decades of my life. I don't have to give this son of a bitch 
one more second. I don't care if you're eight or 80. I don't care if you're anorexic. I don't care if you're bulimic. I don't care if you're morbidly obese or whatever you are. You are a child of the universe, no less than the trees and the stars. You have a right to be here. Fight for your life and you will see miracles beyond your wildest dreams. And if you walk to God, he will run to you. If he did it for me, he'll do it for you. Because you are his precious child. Don't think that recovery is for the privileged or that recovery is for the few. We're not the Marines, the few, the proud, the Marines. No, it is for anyone and everyone who works for it. We are not privileged people who are in recovery. We are just the people that do the work. Like my friend in New Jersey says, South Jersey, my friend Kim, she says, we're sorry you didn't get any results from the work you didn't do. I like when she says that. But the bottom line is you do the work. You test God. You test God. And you see where God is lacking, you will not be able to see where God is lacking. There are miracles out there. And there are miracles for me and there are miracles for you. You don't have any reason to believe any different at all whatsoever because there isn't a person that I've ever seen in my 44 years of being in these rooms, 44 years I'm in these rooms. That's a long time. I'm here almost half a century for crying out loud. I came in here when I was 24 years old. 24 years old, I came in as a pisher. I was a putz, a pisher. And I looked down at my shoes the entire meeting and I was scared to death of you. And they were hugging and there was girls there, women there. They were hugging and they were holding hands. Freaked me out. And you know, meetings were much bigger then. And the reason that they were bigger then is because of the active treatment centers. One of the things, one of the reasons that meetings got very small in OA is because of the insurance companies pulling the funding on the treatment centers. And when the treatment centers went the way of the dodo bird, our meetings went from 150, 200 people, 75 people to seven or eight or nine, almost overnight, because the treatment centers were pumping so many people into our meetings, it wasn't even funny. You'd go to some of these meetings, at least in Chicago, and there'd be two buses outside, two little school buses, one from the one treatment center and then one from the other treatment center. And they would come in and they would, you know, populate the meetings. So we had greeters, huggers, treasurers, secretaries, I mean, for every meeting. And when you share at a meeting, then you couldn't do it from your seat. You had to stand up 
and you had to go to the front of the room. Every meeting was theater style. Everybody sat facing the front. And then if you shared, then you went up to the front of the room. You'll see a lot of that if you come to the OA birthday. In order to share, you're not going to be able to do that from your seat. You're going to have to line up and go to the front of the room. So the OA birthday, which is coming up January 12th, 13th, and 14th, which I highly recommend. I will be there, and I know that there'll be maybe 1,500, maybe as many as you know, God knows, hopefully 2000, I don't know, but there's going to be a lot of people there. You're going to be, have an opportunity there to see some of the things that you really should see. But uh, you'll see that at the birthday, which I highly recommend again, oabirthday.com, OA birthday, or go to OALAIG. OA stands for Overeaters Anonymous. LA stands for Los Angeles. IG stands for Intergroup. OALAIG. Click on that and then you can register like that too. But the OA birthday is a good example of very big meetings, very big you know, population, and you have to go to the front to share. What was my point on that? Oh, yeah, I just wanted to plug the birthday. So that was my cheap commercial during the middle of our little big book study here this morning. I like to plug the birthday. But anyway, that aside, so we have these losses that we have. And when we go through Bill's story, which we'll be doing, you know, in, in, in a while, not today, obviously, but we're going to look at how Bill goes from a very self-confident person. We're going to look at how Bill goes from a person who believes that he's going to be a captain of industry to a person who's contemplating suicide. And that has nothing to do with maybe drinking or whatever. Yes, obviously the alcoholism did, but this is part of the toll that this disease takes on you. It destroys your psyche. It destroys your confidence. It destroys you. It, it, it's, it's a disease of self-hatred, self-loathing. You deserve not to hate what you see in the mirror. You deserve not to hate what you see when you look at yourself. You deserve to love yourself. There's two permanent relationships in a life. Everything else is transitory. There's two permanent relationships, the relationship you have with yourself and the relationship you have with God. So let's work on both by working on one. And the way to work on it is to get into recovery, do the things you need to do. And once again, if you're around me, you'll hear me say this quite a bit. If you want to find God, the easiest place to find him is where he hangs out the most. Look for God in the face of one of his children. And if you look for him in the face of one of his children, you will certainly find him every time. Let's go to page 137. We are going to be talking about the devastating loss of dreams, the loss of time, the excruciating loneliness, the horrific horrific toll that this disease rots on our life. But let's continue our reading 137. Near the bottom, nearly every modern employer feels a moral responsibility for the well-being of his help. And he tries to meet these responsibilities that he has not always done so for the alcoholic is easily understood. 
To him, the alcoholic has often seemed a fool of the first magnitude because of the employee's special ability or of his own strong personal attachment to him. The employer has sometimes kept such a man at work long beyond a reasonable period. Some employers have tried every known remedy. In only a few instances has there been a lack of patience and tolerance. And we who have imposed on the best of employers can scarcely blame them if they have been short with us. Here, for instance, is a typical example. An officer of one of the largest banking institutions in America knows I no longer drink. One day he told me about an executive of the same bank who from his description has undoubt was undoubtedly alcoholic. This seemed to me like an opportunity to be helpful, so I spent two hours talking about alcoholism, the malady, and, the, and described the symptoms and results as well as I could. His comment was very interesting, but I'm sure this man is done drinking. He has just returned from a three-month leave of absence, has taken a cure, looks fine, and to clinch the matter, the board of directors told him this was his last chance. Now let's take a look at what that paragraph signifies. We've talked about the loss of this disease. We've talked about the devastating loss of this disease. Now we're gonna talk about something else. We're going to talk about the monolith of the denial that we face with ourselves. This executive, is talking about denial. He has said that this alcoholic, he has been told this is his last chance, so that's it. Were that it were so simple. So we've talked about loss. We've talked about lost dreams. We've talked about the lost time. Now we want to talk about denial. And this chapter, a lot of this chapter, is about denial. We have to look at our lives. Are we at or approaching a healthy body weight? Are we doing our steps? Are we doing what our sponsors have told us to do? Are we avoiding doing what they've asked us not to do? Are we conducting ourselves in a way that if everything we said and did yesterday, everywhere we went yesterday, was on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, are we okay with that? Because if we're not, something is wrong. If we're not, something is very, very wrong. When I wanna keep secrets to myself, when I don't want you to know where I've been, what I've eaten, who I talked to, what I said, where I went, when I want to keep these secrets, that is usually where the disease lives. Now, I'm not saying I'm going to come on here next week and I'm not going to publish my, um, my uh, what do you call it, my debit card, you know, the card you slide in the bank. I'm not going to publish the card with the passcode. Probably not, but just about anything else in my life is open game. I am an open book. I don't go places I'm ashamed of. I don't do things that I'm ashamed of. I am an open book because that's the only way I can live and stay in recovery. 
I have to do that. It's very, very important. So we're talking about denial. And the only thing we can do is we can talk to sponsors, we can talk to people, and sometimes, not sometimes, most of the time, that will break down this denial that will kill us. This denial will kill certainly, because the first thing we need to do is admit to ourselves that we are compulsive overeaters and that our lives have become unmanageable. We, we is the first word of the first step. We admitted to, we admitted that we were powerless over food and our lives have become unmanageable. And this is the admission. The only step that I have to work perfectly is step one. That is the only step that must be worked perfection to perfection perfectly is step one. Everything else is a work in progress. Everything else is B plus, maybe A minus, B plus, but this step has to be worked perfectly. Okay, let's continue on page 138. The only answer I could make was that if the man followed the usual pattern, he would go on a bigger bus than ever. I felt this was inevitable and wondered if the bank was doing the man an injustice. Why not bring him into contact with some of our alcoholic crowd? He might have a chance. I pointed out that I had had nothing to drink whatever for three years, and this in the face of difficulties that would have made nine out of 10 men drink their heads off. Why not at least afford him an opportunity to hear my story? Oh no, said my friend, the chap is either through with liquor or he is minus a job. If he has your willpower and guts, he will make the grade. Now let's talk about the other concept here that is very, very important in the banker. Now we've talked about loss and we've talked about denial. Now we're going to talk about another concept that is important for us to recognize, not just in others, but in ourselves. And that concept is ignorance. Now, when I say ignorance, I am not talking about stupidity, okay? I am talking about ignorance. What does ignorance mean? It doesn't mean you're stupid. Albert Einstein was probably ignorant on millions and millions of subjects. Ignorance means no knowledge of. Some of the most brilliant people in the world are ignorant of different subjects. I am completely ignorant of many subjects. Boy, I don't even I don't even have the time to go into it. But the bottom line is I have no knowledge of medicine. I have no knowledge of different things. I just don't know. So this concept of ignorance should not make you defensive. Now, the concept that we first talked about, loss, 
that we can grab because, yeah, poor me, I lost out on this and I lost out on that and I'll never go to homecoming and I'll never find out some girl in my school had a crush on me. I'll never be the love of someone's life. I'll never have that passion of youth, the physical passion of youth, and I'll never fulfill some of these dreams. That we can can sort of grip more easily because we can feel like victims. And the the next concept that we talked about was denial. And denial we can we can sort of grasp onto. It's a little harder than loss, but we can grasp onto the denial. But the hardest of the concepts that we're going to be talking about today, ignorance, is a harder one because too many of us equate ignorance with stupidity, and it has nothing to do with it. You could be cognitively as healthy as hell. You could test off the charts and you're going to be ignorant of certain things. And this banker is ignorant of alcoholism. And how many times a year do people come to the meetings and they ask in the uh, Q&A, they say, how can I make my relatives understand what I go through? And my answer is always the same. You can't. And they don't have to. The only one that has to understand that you are a compulsive overeater and that your life is unmanageable and that you've come to believe that a power greater than yourself could restore you to sanity and then you work the rest of it. The only one that has to have knowledge of that is you. I don't have to have knowledge of your particular plight. I don't have to have knowledge of what it's like for you to have eight kids or for you to be able to stand on your head or I don't have to know any of that. I don't have to know. The only thing I have to know is if you tell me you're a compulsive overeater, I understand at my level at my gut level what that is. I get it. Why? How do I get it? I get it because I am it. So the three concepts that we've dealt with so far in this chapter are loss, denial, and ignorance. Loss, denial, and ignorance. Now, why am I pointing out ignorance as something very important? Because a lot of times we get this idea that I had that if you don't know something from birth, you just can't know it. I know somebody who lived in the Western suburbs of Chicago. And this was a person who went to a parochial grammar school and they went to a secular high school. And when they were in their secular high school, they had a teacher in geometry. And this teacher taught this person a lesson that if you stay with this, and you keep working it and working it and don't get angry at yourself. Don't get frustrated at yourself. You will master geometry. And this particular person got an A in geometry because they did what the teacher told them to do. Now, this teacher is our instructor today because I am here to tell you that if you keep working your steps, You may not be an authority on the big book. You may not be a historian of the big book. You may be, you may not be, but you don't have to be. 
All you have to know is that you have an allergy of the body and a twist of the mind that separates you from the normal temperate eater. And as long as you know that, you will hopefully, hopefully take the necessary steps to recover. And that recovery becomes impossible for you unless you do the work. It is not about figuring it out. It's not about knowing it. The only thing you have to know, the only thing you have to be devoid of ignorance on is your own condition. So of the three things, loss, denial, and ignorance, the one thing that will clear all of it up, because God makes it easy to recover, he makes it easy to recover. You want to clear them all up? Work the steps. Work the steps. Forget about everything else. Forget about understanding it. When I say ignorance, I mean of your own condition. You don't have to be the world-renowned authority on the history of AA. You don't have to be the world-renowned authority on food. You don't have to be the world-renowned authority on anything. All you got to know is that you are different from your fellows. The idea that somehow, someday, the alcoholic will be able to enjoy and control his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. When will I be able to eat pizza again? Not today. Maybe tomorrow. I don't know. But if I'm going to eat pizza, I'm going to Chicago. I'm going to Geno's East. I ain't eating the pizza here in Arizona. Fah. That would be terrible. I wouldn't give, I don't know. I've never had it, but I don't think the pizza here can compare to Gino's East. That I can tell you in Chicago. That that I'm going to stake my reputation on. It cannot hold a candle to Gino's East. So I would be on the next plane for Chicago. But the bottom line is, is that I can't eat it today. Why not? Because it will destroy me. It will destroy me. Now, is knowing that pizza going to destroy me, is that enough to keep me from eating it? Absolutely not. If were that it were so simple, huh, guys? Were that it were so simple, the only thing that's going to keep me from eating pizza is God Almighty. The only thing that's going to keep me from wanting pizza is God Almighty. And he is bigger than anything I can conceive of. Is there anything of this earth that caused my disease? No. Is there anything of this earth that's going to cure my disease? No. My only respite is in God. It says at the very end of chapter three, we have an illness that only a spiritual experience will conquer. We have an illness that only a spiritual experience will conquer. I've never had a spiritual experience, but I've had a spiritual awakening. And that spiritual awakening is sufficient to bring about a recovery. So just in review, we've talked about loss. We've talked about denial. 
and we've talked about ignorance. Those are three vital concepts. Let's continue, but we're going to build on that knowledge of loss, denial, and ignorance. Write that down. It's going to be on the test. All right, bottom of 130, there's no test. Some of the new people are looking around like, oh my God, what, 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 what? No, no, no test, no test. The test is your life. <laughs> Very bottom, I saw some of you looking around like, what, what, what? All right, I wanted to throw up my, I'm at the bottom of 138, last paragraph. I wanted to throw up my hands in discouragement for I saw that I had failed to help my banker friend understand he simply could not believe that this brother executive suffered from a serious illness. There was nothing to do but wait. Presently, the man did slip and was fired. Following his discharge, we contacted him without much ado. He accepted the principles and procedure that had helped us. In other words, he worked the steps. He is undoubtedly on the road to recovery. To me, this incident illustrates lack of understanding ignorance as to what really ails the alcoholic and lack of knowledge as to what part employers might profitably take in salvaging their sick employees. It is just unfortunate that in this world, not in this, just in this country, in this world, how much addiction sucks the life out of industries and businesses, things like that. So much of your absenteeism, so much of your non-feasance, so much of your malfeasance comes from addiction. Not all, but so much of it comes from this addiction, this, this, this addiction to different things. If you desire to help, it might be well to disregard your own drinking or lack of it, whether you are a hard drinker, a moderate drinker, a teetotaler, you may have some pretty strong opinions, perhaps prejudices. Those who drink moderately may be more annoyed with an alcoholic than a total abstainer would be. Drinking occasionally and understanding your own reactions, it is possible for you to become quite sure of many things, which so far as the alcoholic is concerned are not always so. As a moderate drinker, you can take your liquor or leave it alone. Whenever you want to, you control your drinking. Of an evening, you can go on a mild bender, get up in the morning, shake your head and go to business. To you, liquor is no real problem. You cannot see why it should be to anyone else, save the spineless and the stupid. I have a very, very dear friend of mine who lives here in Arizona. He is most of the reason that I live here. He and his family live here and have lived here longer than I. And they wanted me to come out years and years before I did. He's a good friend. He's a very, very dear friend. And I know everything about him. I know his, I knew his dad. His dad's passed away. I know his mom. His mom is 91 years old, lovely lady. And as close to a surrogate mom as I have ever had, this lady would fit the bill. And she is the one that first dragged me by the ear to come to Overeaters Anonymous on that freezing cold February day, February 2nd, 1979. She was the one who dragged me to my very first meeting and waited for it to finish and then took me home. And they, they're very, very precious to me. But here's what I can tell you. I know everything about him that there is to know. He knows everything about me. 
He knew my mom. He knew my dad. I've known him a long, long time. He does not understand at any level. And he's one of the smartest people I know. He's a, he's a sharp cookie. Boy, I'll tell you, he's, he's a sharp dude. He really is a sharp guy. Very, very smart. He's brilliant when it comes to business and investing and things. He's just a brilliant guy. But there's one thing I know he does not understand. Why would anybody in their right mind eat a third piece of pizza? Why would anybody do that? Why would anybody eat a Hershey bar? Why would anybody do that when they are sitting there alone complaining about what food has done to them? Why in the name of the wide world of sports would any normal human being do that? I got to tell you this story. It's a story I've heard talked many times. He and his wife are both normal eaters, very normal eaters. And every February here in the Valley of the Sun, is Girl Scout cookie season. And every year they buy a box of Girl Scout cookies. Every year they buy one box. Whoever heard of buying one box of Girl Scout cookies? I think it should be against the law. But anyway, they buy one. And you know, they haven't done this for quite some time, but they used to have a big bash during the summer. They would invite everyone over. We get together and they'd bring this box of Girl Scout cookies and put it out. And there'd be maybe three, maybe five cookies gone. And they'd pack the rest of the box up. And every year, right around Christmas Eve, they would have a big party at their house. They have a big beautiful house in a place called Tempe, Arizona. It's very, very beautiful. He lives in a big gated community and it's quite the bash. I wish all of you could come. It's really a lot of fun. We see people we only see like once a year, stuff like that. It's a lot of fun. Anyway, they put the cookies out yet again and another five of the cookies will disappear, maybe four. And they take the rest of the box of cookies and throw them out. Now, how am I going to get a person like that to understand what the hell goes on in my heart, mind, body, soul, when I'm looking at food, certain foods, not all foods, but certain foods? How are you going to get them to understand? And here's the answer. You're not going to. You can't make them understand what you are, who you are, any more than you can make an otter do algebra. You are not going to be able to make them understand you any more than you understand them. I don't drink liquor. I never liked liquor. I never, I never had a taste for liquor. I don't like it. I don't like the smell of it. I don't like the taste of it. And I'll be damned if I'm going to, because liquor is loaded in calories. If I'm going to drink something to get myself feeling good, then damn it, let it be chocolate milk or a McDonald's milkshake. I sure as hell don't want to drink liquor. If I've had 10 drinks of liquor in my life, that's a lot. And I probably never finished one of them. I don't like liquor, don't like the taste of it, sure as heck don't like the smell of it, 
don't have any desire to drink liquor. And I may be the only person you know that I've never smoked a joint in my life. I was about 10 years old. I was visiting my friend, uh, David, and he lived about a block from me in Chicago. And his sister, when she was at Mather High School in Chicago, she was the it girl. She was the head of the cheerleaders. She was the it girl, very much the it girl. And she came home one day and she was with her friend in, in her bedroom there. And we were watching Clutch Cargo or something or Bozo, not Bozo, Bozo's on at noon. We were watching cartoons or something in, in, in Chicago. And they came out and they just ripped everything right out of that cabinet, man. They just ripped food you wouldn't believe. And she said to her brother and I, don't smoke pot because it makes you want to eat like you've never eaten in your life. Well, that registered in my brain. I've never smoked pot because the last thing I want in my life is anything that's going to increase my appetite for food. Good Lord, I don't want anything to do that for me. God Almighty, I don't want that in my life. So it registered in my head. I've never smoked a joint. I've never done a street drug in my entire life uh, because I don't want anything that's going to mess with my appetite. God, if there's anything I don't need, it's that. So anyway, how am I going to make someone understand me? The answer is you're not. And it's only our egos that want to want them to understand. Some of you come from families where there's addiction. Some of you don't. How are you going to make them understand? You're not going to. So the only one that has to understand what I am and who I am is me. No one else has to understand. I have many friends and I'm lucky I have new friends and I have old friends. They're not old. They're, well, they've had a lot of birthdays. <laughs> they've had a lot of birthdays, mostly almost 70 of them. But I've got a lot of friends that I've known for a very, very long time. And they will never understand it. And I will never understand them. Give it up, guys. It's not going to happen. So, as we, oh, let's just do another paragraph or two. I'm at the bottom of 139. When dealing with an alcoholic, there may be a natural annoyance that a man could be so weak, stupid, and irresponsible. Even when you understand the malady better, you may feel this feeling rising. A look at the alcoholic in your organization is many times illuminating. Look at yourself. That's pretty illuminating. Is he not usually brilliant, fast thinking, imaginative, and likable when sober? Does he not work hard and have a knack for getting things done? If he had these qualities and did not drink, would he be worth retaining? Should he have the same consideration as other ailing employees? Is he worth salvaging? Is your decision, if your decision is yes, whether the reason be humanitarian or business or both, then the following suggestion can be, may be helpful. Can you discard the feeling that you are dealing only with habit, with stubbornness or a weak will? 
If this presents difficulty, rereading chapters two and three where the alcoholic sickness is discussed at length may be worthwhile. You as a businessman want to know the necessities before considering the result. If you concede that your employee is ill, can he be forgiven for what he has done in the past? Can his past absurdities be forgotten? Can it be appreciated that he has been a victim of crooked thinking directly caused by the action of alcohol on his brain? I'm gonna stop right there. Can you forgive yourself? Can you think that way about yourself? Because that's really the point, isn't it? Most of you are not captains of industry with thousands of employees. Most of you are something different than that. But whether you are the president of the United States or the president of uh, Bozo Circus, it doesn't matter. Can you look at yourself and think to yourself, I'm going to salvage my life and I'm going to do it within the framework of these steps. I'm going to do it in a way that is going to give me recovery and I'm going to do it holding God's hand the whole way. Sometimes you may have to get a new concept of God. Sometimes you may have to work on things with your sponsor. But the bottom line is you are going to have to look at yourself and you are going to have to say to yourself, am I going to forgive myself? Am I going to work toward this recovery with the one life I have? Guys, this is not a dress rehearsal. This is it. Yes, you've been embarrassed. Yes, you have known the pain of this disease. Yes, you have been made fun of, or yes, you have had pain. When is it okay to recover? And I say now. And the three concepts that we are dealing with in this chapter are apropos not just to others, because as I've said, most of you are not captains of industry, nor am I. We are alive, and so we are captains of our life. The first one being loss. Can I get over the loss? I have to work on this every day. I feel inadequate at times because I haven't had the experiences that other people around me have had. Can I forgive God? Can I forgive myself? And can I get past it? The loss, the denial, and the ignorance. The loss, the denial, and the ignorance. So what are we talking about? What draws loss, ignorance, and denial together? And that is pain. Many of you have suffered tremendous pain disgrace at the hands of this disease. Can you forgive God? Can you forgive yourself? You are not a bad person. You are a sick person. And as a sick person, you are going to eat food that you'd rather not eat in amounts you'd rather not consume because of your physical allergy and your twist of the mind. Time is going. 
My fall the other day on September the 12th really drove home that you don't know what tomorrow brings. You may think because you're young that you have all this time left and that someday you're going to do this and someday you're going to do that. Well, let me tell you something. When they come and get you for the big meeting in the sky, nobody's going to clear it with you first. When they took my mom, nobody asked my permission. When they took my dad, nobody asked me for my permission. They just took him. Before I turn it back to you, because I'm noticing the time, and thank you guys for coming. Before I turn it back, I just want to ask that if you asked a question last week, Hang back, let people who did not ask one come forward. Number two, no food questions. I'm not going to 